welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast that features conversations with writers of all types. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by The Craft Studio. With locations in New York City, on the Upper East Side, and in Tribeca, The Craft Studio is a perfect place to bring your kids for some crafting fun. CraftStudioNYC.com. I'm really excited to be interviewing Susie Orman Schnall today. Susie is the author of three novels, The Subway Girls, The Balance Project, and On Grace. She founded the Balance Project interview series, in which she interviewed 163 women like Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Michelle Gellar about how to achieve work-life balance. She has contributed to many publications, including Harper's Bazaar, HuffPost, Glamour, and others. An L.A. native, she attended the University of Pennsylvania and now lives in Purchase, New York, with her husband and three sons. So welcome, Susie. Thanks for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Um, so for listeners who haven't read The Subway Girls, which is my personal favorite of yours, what is it about? So The Subway, Subway Girls is about two strong and ambitious women who are trying to realize their dreams both personally and professionally. And it's all set against the real-life advertising campaign of the Miss Subway's advertising contest. Um, and just to give you a little sense of what that is, is um, Miss Subway's – so in the early 40s, the MTA wanted to increase rider morale and also draw eyeballs up to the advertisements on the subway system. And so they hired J. Walter Thompson, which was the preeminent advertising agency of the time. And J. Walter Thompson came up with this idea for a beauty contest. Um, and J. Walter Thompson hired John Robert Powers, which was the big modeling agency, to judge the contest. And it wasn't a beauty contest where the women were walking up and down the aisles of the subway cars. It was a, um, the women mailed their photographs into John Robert Powers and John Robert Powers chose a woman each month to be Miss Subways. And her photograph, along with a few sentences about her ambitions um, and her personality would be posted up on subway posters for you know, millions of riders to see every single month. So, um, so my story is dual storyline. In 1949, you have Charlotte who wants to go into advertising and she, um, ends up competing in the Miss Subway's contest. And in 2018, you have Olivia who is a female advertising executive and she is pitching the MTA account comes across the Miss Subway's contest in her research, the two storylines end up intersecting, and that's where the fun begins. Excellent. And how did you come up with this idea? I was listening to NPR in my car one day, and a story came on, Radio Diaries, about the Miss Subway's contest. And I listened to it, and I was just blown away. A beauty contest in the subway system, it just seemed so unreal to me. Um, I didn't grow up in New York, so I hadn't never seen you know, or heard of this just from anecdotally either. So I went home and I re-listened to that Radio diary story. And it spoke a lot about um, this nonfiction book called Meet Miss Subways, where two women had um, researched the Miss Subways contest and also had sought out all of the 200 winners. As I said, the contest ran from 1941 to 1976, and 200 women won the contest during that time. So these two authors, Fiona Gardner and Amy Zimmer, one was a photographer, one is an author, they tried to locate all of the 200 winners, 
found 41 of them and photographed and interviewed all of them. And so I then bought that book, started reading that, became even more fascinated and enthralled with the contest and thought that it would make such an interesting premise for a novel because there's so much to unpack there. There's the really interesting slice of life history of New York City that very few people know about. And then there's all the uh, female ambition, um, juicy material in there to really wrap my hands around because that's that's an interest of mine in exploring through fiction. Excellent. Um, I really loved the part in the book uh, when Olivia is talking to her associate Priya. This is in the modern day part of the book um, at the ad agency. And Priya says, when I meet women in their 80s and 90s, it's easy to forget that they were living these vibrant lives when they were younger. It's awful, but I admit that I underestimate older women. And then Olivia responds, I know what you're saying. You just assume that the times they lived in were so different that they couldn't possibly know what it's like for us. But you know what? From reading those posters and all the other articles, those women were going through the same shit we are. All the conflicts with work and personal lives, that is nothing new. So I was hoping you could tell me more about that scene and the takeaway and how you personally decided to add it to the narrative. You said you were interested in the, obviously, with the work-life balance and the um, balance interviews. Um, yeah. So t- tell me more about it. Yeah, so I, it's, it's a few different things. It's the fact that I myself feel that way. You know, I underestimate older women sometimes, but I've, um, I'm, I'm always interested when I meet an older woman to really talk to her and find out her story. And I do this a lot now whenever, you know, I love going out with friends and their moms because, or their grandmas, because I just, I, I love hearing their stories and what got them, um, what was interesting to them at the time, what the obstacles were, what the challenges were for them and what their dreams and ambitions were. And I think that I really was able to absorb that and, um, use that information for this book by reading Amy and Fiona's book, Meet Miss Subways, which, which gives the history. So, so let me backtrack for a second. When I first heard about Miss Subways on NPR, I wanted to know, you know, who were these women that entered the contest? Why did they enter the contest? What was it like for them to win and how did winning affect the rest of their lives? And in the book, Meet Miss Subways, the nonfiction book, um, they, that's what the stories were. So each woman has about three or four pages and I got to find out the answers to those questions. And you learn, you know, it, it allowed me to learn a lot about a lot of women. Um, and I, I mainly focused on the women who won in the forties and fifties, uh, cause that was the focus of the book, but it, it just opened my eyes to, um, what women were going through at the time. And, 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 and it, it's all about kind of the social construct of the time. And it's very difficult to look at it through our eyes and, um, and, and our reality in 2018 or even when we were choosing professions because the cultural constructs and the expectations for women were just so different. You know, I mean, women were, it was the, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word expected to marry early or expected to have kids younger. It was just the norm. And when you're brought up in a way that this is normal, a lot of women, I don't want to, I don't want to say it doesn't occur to them to go against the norm because that makes them sound as if they don't have agency. But sometimes when something is just the expectation, it's just what you do, you know? And so, gosh, I don't even know where I was. I think that, um, I, I just, I think that when you really start to focus on 
what women wanted. You may learn that they wanted something different, but it was because of either their own financial situation or their family situation that they had to take a different path. And you did such a good job of that um, when you talked about um, when Charlotte, who was in your you know 1949 narrative, um, you know you juxtaposed her professional life now with Olivia's in her ad agency, um, and you wrote, um, but now that she has graduated and none of her other job prospects had come to fruition, Charlotte realized that she had to just resign herself to the new reality that she would be living at home, working in her father's store, and that was that. Not every girl's dreams came true. Not every girl was destined to feel like she had sidestepped expectations. Not every girl could be significant. So I felt, I was like, I thought that was so depressing. Like, did everybody feel like that? Was it so hard? I mean, her, Charlotte's dream was like to be in the typing pool of an ad agency. And now she's like, oh, I guess I can't do it. My four job applications didn't work out. Like, oh my gosh. Anyway, um, it was a good, uh, it was a very good highlight of how things were back then, I guess, for most Yeah, people, right? yes and no. And it really, as I said, it depended on the woman. It depended upon her own personal ambitions and her own family situation. Because look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right, she was approximately the same age as, as Charlotte is in the story. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, graduated from Cornell and went to Harvard Law School, was one of, I think, six or nine women in a class in her Harvard Law School class of 500. And so um, it really, really depended on so many things. And again, looking at it through our lens is difficult because if it was the norm to get married and have kids younger, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg did as well. I mean, she got married young, right out of college um, and had children young. And I mean, it was hard to at that time to have children and go to law school and then become a judge, you know, to become a lawyer and all that. Um, and so many women, it just, it didn't even seem like something they could even aspire to. Um, and the rules were different. A lot of companies required a husband's permission. If you got married and you worked, your husband had to give permission for you to continue working. And so it just, it, I don't want to underestimate or minimize the ambitions of these women um, by judging them from our reality because I just think everything was so different. But what's amazing are the women who defied those odds and defied those expectations and paved the way for us. And I'm so thankful for them. Oh, <laughs> me too. Um, you know, to, to switch gears a little um, – so you wrote in such this like knowing, touching way. Charlotte, you had Charlotte's brother um, die in this book in, in the war, and um, you wrote in such a nuanced way about how it was affecting her mom, her dad, herself, and over time, how it was in the beginning, how it evolved. And um, I wondered where that storyline came from. If that was a personal loss for you, if you just were interested in exploring that in a novel. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it, it wasn't a personal for me in my family. Um, to be honest, it was a device for the novel in a couple answers. First, it was a device for the novel because, because if Charlotte's brother were alive, he would have taken over the family business. And I wanted, you know, this isn't really giving anything away, but Charlotte's father is requiring her to come work at their family store. And if the brother had been alive, he would have done that, which would have freed her up to pursue her ambition. So in order for her to be the one 
who was required to work at the father's store, there couldn't be a brother in the picture. So that's, but I also wanted her to have a brother so that um, there was just a lot of family relationships that were, and, and her family reality that is based on the fact that her brother did die in the war. And it was just very, you know, it was, it was a reality at the times that, that, that young men didn't come home from the war. Um, but I've also, you know, as we all have witnessed, um, young people taken too early from their families. And so there definitely was some reflection on what I've seen with friends and, and families um, and was able to build the story from there. Well, I think you did such a nice job of that. It was very, Thank you. very like gritty and real. And I don't know. I really liked it. Thank um, you. you also had uh, this lovely scene towards the end where Charlotte is talking to her mom who had been pretty withdrawn up until then. I hope I'm not, I don't think I'm giving, I'm not giving anything away. Um, And I I try not to in my questions. Um, And then her mom suddenly opens up and says, you know, I've learned valuable lessons from a lot of experiences. She's talking about the store. Each of those scenarios seems so important. Like nothing else in the world can continue as normal because I was experiencing something so critical. But you know what? Life goes on. The world outside does not stop for a second for our little, and that's what they are in the scheme of things, little individual problems. It took me a long time to learn that, and I don't want you to have to be my age when you figure it out. So do you think that when we're in the thick of it, right, I love the wisdom of the mother looking back, like all the younger people like me or whatever, everybody, can we even... Can we stop and have that vantage point now? Or do you think we have to get older? Or like is hearing it, you know, you can hear things and not internalize it. Do you think it's possible? Do you think, what do you think? I just think it depends on the person's own individual experiences. I think if you went through something as a teenager and came, I think you have to come out on the other side of something big in order to have that wisdom. And I just, so it obviously depends on what each person has gone through in his or her own life. Um, and I think it's incredibly difficult to have any perspective on anything when you are the one in the middle of it, whatever it may be, um, illness or death or losing a job or losing a, you know, anything like that. And so, um, I, I, I've always appreciated the, the perspective of older people who've gone through so much, um, And at that time, you know, her parents had gone through the death of their child and and lived during the war. And, you know, it was just such a different reality than what we're dealing with, luckily. But, um, yeah, I think that's what older, wiser people are for, right, is to give us that perspective and to um, the the adage, this too shall pass, is really, really true. In most things, um, when you're deep in the thick of it, this too shall pass though it doesn't seem like it's possible at the time um, because everything's so heavy and so fraught, uh, when you do come out on the other side, you're you're able to look back and then learn from that experience the next time something happens. I had this coffee once with a girl I worked with at my very first job. She was probably five years – I mean, she couldn't have been more than 30 at the time. And she took me out to lunch and something had been going on. I can't remember what. Anyway, she said to me, all right, well, think about the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. Do you have it? And I was like, yeah. She's like, well, you, you got you got past that, didn't you? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. So anyway, I, 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 can't, I cannot even remember her name. But anyway, I think about that a lot because, you know, having that advice from someone older and just, you know, the perspective, I guess. But Right. And I think that, that I don't know about you, but I have, when I've experienced things that were not too pleasant or whatever, um, some big things, you realize, okay, you can get through it. You are stronger than you thought you could have been. And so sometimes when things seem so dire, you think, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And could I get through that? Yeah, you could, you know, that's just life. So, 
Okay. Didn't mean to get so heavy into okay. that for a minute, but anyway, um, uh, just from a writing perspective, the two storylines at different times, how did you go about writing that? Did you like write a whole book about one character and then a whole other book? Tell me about your method to the... To so the when, I, when I realized that I wanted to do dual storyline, I questioned how to attempt it as you're asking right then. And I reached out to a couple of authors I know who have written dual storylines to ask them how they did it. And of course they all came back with different answers. So then I just decided to do it work for me. And I found that I wrote, um, I wrote one storyline at a time. So I wrote all of 1949 Charlotte's story. And then I wrote all of 2018 Olivia's story. And then what I did was I actually put a notation, each chapter, I made an index card for each chapter with kind of what happened. And I laid them, you know, 1949 out on my floor in one row and 2018 on the next row. And even though they were in chapters already, I kind of moved things around um, to figure out how to, you know, interlock them. And the thing that was tricky and what I had to um, go back and forth on a couple times was there were certain things that, the reader knew in 2018 about Charlotte that Charlotte didn't know yet about herself and her 1949 story. And I had to decide whether it was more fun for the reader to know something about Charlotte that hadn't happened to her yet, or if the reader should find out when Charlotte did. And so I kind of had to um, manipulate that a little bit and go back and forth testing out which way I thought worked. Um, and then I had to, you know, when I, when I would decide one way, then I would have to go back and edit and pull out little clues that I didn't want to be clues yet. So that's how I went about it. And, um, I think that I would do it exactly that way another time. And I know authors who write, you know, one chapter, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and they find that it helps them be fresher because they've taken themselves out of you know, storyline A to work on storyline B, and then they can go back to storyline A. That would not work for me. But it's interesting how everybody does it differently. That is interesting. Um, So in in terms of when you were writing, how do you like to write? Do you write right there at your desk with the beautiful wallpaper? Do you, where do you, you, like, what's your, what's your structure? How do you do, like, what's your method? So I've now written four books, three are published, and my fourth book I'm in the editing process for. And it's kind of been different um, for each one, but typically I write, yeah, I wrote one, yeah, I've written them all in different places, but the the similarity is it's at a desk in a very quiet place. Um, I prefer to write on a desktop as opposed to a laptop because I just feel like I have a bigger screen because I, I have especially for this book, for my third and fourth books, which have more of a historical aspect to it. I have Safari open, you know, I'm looking at, at, at different things online. I mean, on, on the internet doing, um, some research and stuff like that. So I like to have a big screen and I have my piles of notebooks all around, but I, my writing of my first draft is the, is the, is the shortest part of my process. So I spend, for instance, for the subway girls, I started writing in January and ended in about October, but the writing of the first draft took only two weeks. It's the, I spend a ton of time, especially for that book, doing research and plotting and outlining and trying to figure out, um, how the story is going to go, what the, what the journeys are of the two main characters, you know, how they're going to evolve from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, making sure I have enough conflicts and enough 
high points and low points and and really wanting to be authentic and accurate with the history. Um, and then I write the first draft. Um, halfway through, I throw out my outlines and, and all that because, you know, you can only – I follow it to a to – a, to some extent and then everything changes because the story just starts to take on a direction of its own, re-outline and plot. Um, and then I spend a great deal of time on my revisions because I write very, very fast and I get kind of the bones of the novel out. You know, it might be 60,000 words when the finished book is closer to 80,000 words. And so then I layer on, you know, once I'm done with the first draft, then I make the language prettier. I add a little bit more setting and mood and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I find it's just easier to get the story out onto the page and then have something to work with. And then it goes through the whole editing process at the publishing house. So um, it's a process. Wow. (laughs) How did you get into writing to begin with? My career before I had kids, so I have three boys, they are 13, 15, and 17. And before I had my 17-year-old, I worked um, in marketing and communications for nonprofit organizations, advertising agencies, internet companies, and magazines. But then when I had him, I stopped working full-time and wrote articles freelance for magazines and websites and just kind of, it, it evolved. I just had always thought that I wanted to write a book, but never took that very seriously until at one point I was just not loving the journalistic side of what I was doing. I was more interested in the creative side of writing and thought that it would be a good next step and a good challenge and a good project. So, um, I decided to do that, I think around 2010 and, um, wrote my first book that year or the next year. And it just became something I really enjoyed doing. I think it's a great job for me as a mom um, because it's very flexible and I can do it from home. And um, it's turned out to be a great career choice for me. That's great. Do you structure it like you go into your office and work from this time to this time? Like I'm at work, don't bother me? Or how do you do it? Yeah, well, the um, for me, my experience as an author is that it's a very cyclical business in the sense that there are some authors who write every single day, no matter what. I'm not like that. I, you know, I just came off. So, so here's a perfect example. I finished the last revision on my fourth book, which is not out yet, um, in May. And then starting, and I turned that in. And then I, I started working on all the pre-launch stuff for the Subway Girls, which came out in July. So I basically spent my entire summer just working on the Subway Girls launch, on, on book tour, um, marketing, and all of that. Did not even take a look at my manuscript, which the next revision is due November 1st. So, and then starting today, you know, when the kids started school today, I'm back in my office and ready to start working on my manuscript again. So, um, and I still have a lot of book tour events to go to for the next, you know, six months or so, but I am focused now on the writing. Um, but once I turn that revision in November 1st, then I'll have a break from writing. I won't, you know, it's not like the very next day I'll start on my next book. Um, so that's how I work. But yes, on a work day, and again, it depends on the work day. If it's a writing day, it is like, I'd like to exercise in the morning, but as soon as that's done, it is sitting in my office and my kids are older now. So it's not like I have to, I don't even have to go pick up at school because my oldest one drives. So, um, I can sit in my office and work till five o'clock and that's, you know, and that's fine in my house. Um, 
But if I'm in the middle of writing a manuscript, I need, it has to be a day where I have at least eight hours. Like I need to know that I have two weeks straight of eight to nine hour days. Um, I need to get into the story and that's when I feel that I'm the most productive. But if it's an editing day, I can have three hours or, you know, two hours or four hours. And if it's a marketing day, I can have an hour here and an hour there. So it really just depends what I'm working on. That's great. I mean, I think that's what's so great about writing. It's like you're not just doing the same thing every day. All day, yeah. Right? It's like always new people and the characters you invent and the characters you read about and like how you And then there's social authors, media. Social media, have, marketing. It's like a whole thing. It's like We have to spend so much time on social media too. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer. But anyway, um, <laughs> so tell me a little more about the Balance Project interviews. So how did you – And so I – the book was a novel, not about these interviews. Correct. Then you, then you launched the project and interviewed 163 women. Other, Other way, way around. Other so way around. It, yeah. Way. So, okay, so I was struggling myself um, how to be the type of mother I wanted to be with how to be the type of professional I wanted to be. It just I couldn't figure out how to do it because um, I, I really wanted to be that mother, that present mother for my kids. And this is getting into I am not judging anybody's choices at all. It's so fraught. Um I I talk a lot. I talk to a lot of groups about work-life balance and there are so many, uh, so many expectations to be a quote unquote good mother. And I think it's so harmful to women. And so I'm all for doing what works for you, but I was having trouble figuring out what worked for me in terms of what I wanted for my own life. And so I started just asking friends who, um, had jobs that I respected and clean children. And like, how do you do it? How do you keep all the balls in the air? And I decided to formalize those questions and created the balance project interview series. And basically what that is, is it's on my, I I post the interviews on my website, susieschnall.com. And, um, to date I have 175 interviews up there and every woman answers the same 15 or some odd questions. And when I set out to do the interviews, I was hoping, as I said, to find out how to balance it all. And what I found out instead is that nobody is really doing it all. Everybody is making sacrifices. Anybody says that they are perfect in all of the realms of their lives all the time at sustainable levels is just lying to you because, um, you know, I would, I found that a woman who I had great admiration for and, and was trying to emulate in many ways, she was sleeping four hours a night. I found that another person was having a lot of relationship issues. And so I realized that, well, I want to sleep eight hours a night and I don't want to have relationship issues, but therefore I'm going to have to give on some of the hours that I put into my job. And so these are the things that we have to figure out. But but to talk, and so I then continued those interviews. And when I was deciding what to write my second novel about, I was so inspired by the interviews and the responses that they had been getting that I decided to write a novel about it. Um, and again, as you mentioned, the Balanced Project novel is not a compendium of the articles. It's just um, about the topic of work-life balance, about two women, uh, a young woman who's 25 and her boss who's 45 and how they work together and, and each each of them is struggling with her own work-life balance. Um, but the characters are informed by the interviews that I did and also women I speak to during my talks. And so why did you not make the interviews into a book? 
I did consult with one agent a long time ago about that who said that novels like that, uh, books like that don't sell. That's one person. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. That was also when I had like 15 interviews. So it's just nothing that I've focused on. But what's interesting is that in the novel, The Balance Project, my 45-year-old main character, Catherine, um, she... In the, she's basically a Sheryl Sandberg-esque type character. So, But instead of coming out with a book called Lean In, she has come out with a book called The Balance Project. It's all very tricky. Everything's named The Balance Project. And, she, and, and I outline in that book kind of a four-section, the four sections of The Balance Project book, which someday maybe I will write that book. But, you know, I never really wanted to be um, – academically expert at work-life balance. There are a lot of people doing that. I'm more interested in the anecdotal aspect of it. Um, but you know, my, the interviews have been picked up working mother, uh, republished a lot of them and did a video series of them. So they're definitely getting, um, exposure in other media, but, um, someday maybe. So I feel like you love like digging deep with all the, either the women you're interviewing, the elderly people, like, have you always just been interested in other people's experiences? Is that just sort of it, a part of your personality? And yeah, now you're I always, using it I, for good. <laughs> yeah, I always say that um, if I had to start over, I might be a social anthropologist. I'm just fascinated by how people live their lives. Um, that's why I watch reality shows sometimes because I just I think it's fascinating because I feel like I'm very somewhat mainstream and, and kind of straight and narrow, kind of a nerdy girl who likes to write. And these people are just doing these crazy things. And so I like to watch and just see how other people um, live their lives. And I, I think it's fantastic that there are so many different ways to go about it. But yes, I do love hearing people's stories um, and, and what makes people tick and what sort of life circumstances led them to be that way. And I think that that's something I've only come to as I've gotten older. I think I was a a lot more judgmental when I was younger. And now I think about, well, what was it like to walk in that person's moccasins? And, and, and I don't know what it would be like to grow up this way or that way. And you can't necessarily judge somebody for being this personality or that personality or this driven or not driven without really seeing how they were formed and how their parents were formed. And that, that really um, informs a person's personality a great deal as what, as does, and I talk about this a lot in my work life balance talks, as does a person's just makeup, you know, like I get overwhelmed very, very easily when there's too much on my plate. Um, except if it's a cheese plate, I really like a lot of these. I get overwhelmed very easily. And I look at somebody like Cheryl Sandberg and I say, you can't compare yourself to Cheryl Sandberg, who is just killing it professionally um, because she, I'm, I'm imagining, I don't know her, but I imagine she must be able to handle a lot more her constitution, her, her comp, you know, composition, how she's made up and what mentally what she can handle. And so I try not to compare myself to other people that way. And I, again, that just feeds into why I really like talking to people and asking them why they tick, how they tick. I feel like it's like when you go in the gym and everybody can lift a certain amount before they've done any training. It's just like what you can lift, right? It's just how it is. And I once got accused, I I met somebody and I was, it was at a party and I was asking, um, like a small, but like a dinner party at a friend's house. And there was this couple that I'd never met before. And I ended up talking to the husband and I was asking him, you know, like, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And he's like, what are you trying to box me in? And it's funny because I wasn't, 
you know, he thought I was trying to label him or identify him as to whether he was worth talking to. And it was the complete opposite. I just like knowing, you know, what buckets, you know, what stepping stones people have been on and how it kind of frames who they are today. But I can see how somebody might take it the wrong way. Yeah, that's a shame. I feel like it's it's nice to show such interest in other people. I mean, it's refreshing. And anyway, um, so just I know we're almost out of time. Do you have any advice to aspiring writers out there? Advice to aspiring writers, I would say just stay true to yourself. Don't write for any other reason except that that's what you want to do. Um, also, manage your expectations of yourself. Don't listen to all these myths of, um, you have to write every day or you have to do this or you have to do that. I mean, every writer, I've done a lot of events now with other writers and we always talk about process and all that and everybody's doing it differently. You don't have some, you know, some people have an MFA, some people have never taken a writing class in their lives and you can be successful in so many ways. So I would just say, stay true to yourself, um, figure out what you want to write, but then also get input from professionals. Um, don't put yourself out. If you are writing a manuscript and you do want to become an author, don't submit to my, my number one advice would be don't submit to, uh, agents. Don't query agents until you've had your manuscript professionally edited because there are agents are need ways to need opportunities to say no to manuscripts because they just get too many. It's, it's just a math issue. Um, and so make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. That's from the very beginning. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all of your time. And uh, it was really great talking to you. Thank you. Thank Cindy. you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you invited me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by The Craft Studio, craftstudionyc.com. With locations on the Upper East Side and in Tribeca, The Craft Studio will meet all your family's crafting needs. Be sure to check it out. Thanks. Thanks.